Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Uh, join me in welcoming back Father Andrew Fisher. Okay. It's an honor to be here. Thank you all for coming on a Sunday night during the summer. Thank you so much. Great to see friends. I have so many friends here tonight, and it's a blessing to come to Percival. When I was a college student at Mount St. Mary's, it's not there. I went there to play baseball. I got to think about the priesthood, and I was lucky there was a seminary attached. And the seminarians heard me talking about possibly going to the seminary, and they used to take me out for pizza all the time, <laughs> trying to woo me towards the seminary. And one of them was Father Ron Escalante. So it's great that I can be here tonight in this parish and see an old friend. So, St. Benedict, let me start. In the early afternoon of April 19, 2005, 117 cardinals rose to their feet in the Sistine Chapel and began to applaud loudly. On the fourth ballot of the conclave, they had come to the required majority and had elected the 265th successor of St. Peter and someone to fill the chair vacant by Pope John Paul II. The cardinals applauded, and they stopped and turned and looked at 75-year-old Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who now stood in silence, waiting the two questions that had to be answered according to the laws of the conclave. Cardinal Angelo Sedano, vice dean of the College of Cardinals, turned to Cardinal Ratzinger in front of all their brother cardinals, asked the first question, do you accept? The new pope responded, yes. Then Cardinal Sedano asked the second question, by which name will you be known? Without hesitation, the Pope responded, Benedict. However, at that point, something happened that doesn't often happen. The new Pope stopped and then in front of all the other cardinals explained why he had chosen this name. Usually at this point, the new Pope goes and gets dressed for the first time in the white vestments. Cardinal Francis George, then the Archbishop of Chicago, and one of the cardinals present later recounted in an interview the brief reflection given at that moment by the new pope. The new pope said, Benedict lived at a time when the Roman Empire was collapsing, and he saw the role of the church as to preserve the best in human culture throughout the future centuries. The whole world was crumbling, and St. Benedict helped ensure that human civilization would survive. Pope Benedict XVI had a clear sense of the historical legacy of his namesake. In an era of cultural turbulence and moral decadence, St. Benedict found an utterly new kind of community based on love and truth, and in doing so, desired to keep authentic humanism alive during a dark chapter in human history. St. Benedict did not run away from the world or pretend there weren't problems going on. Instead, he felt called by God to begin a new project that would challenge the values of the 5th and 6th centuries by generating a mode of life based 
upon different principles. This project would not simply make him the father of all Western monastic life, but would also make him a compass to all men and women seeking faith and holiness in a world that it seemed had suddenly turned upside down. Tonight, for a little bit, I'd like to share with you the story of the life of St. Benedict. I'd like to share with you some of the interesting events in his life, his insights on how to live the spiritual life, and how he helped the church hold Western civilization together when it came to a distinct crossroads in world history. No matter your vocation or how much you may already know about this great saint, I pray tonight that St. Benedict can inspire each of us to become saints. In fact, as we hear a story tonight, we can see many parallels between his culture and our culture and our society today. Likewise, entangled today in a web of in intellectual and moral confusion, we now more than ever need the church to shine, to evangelize, and to speak clearly with faith, hope, and love. Despite all the issues of his day, Benedict did not give up. Rather, he lived the gospel and encouraged others around him, no matter their state in life, to enter more fully into the mission of the church, a mission to keep the gaze of society always on God so that humanity would never lose sight of the true and eternal dignity that God had given it. So tonight, where do we start? Good question, right? Well, as a historian, I always like to start with the best sources of information. After all, history is only good as the sources you have. But I have to confess, I start with a problem, that the sources on the life of Benedict are slim and rare. There is no autobiography of St. Benedict, nor are there any recorded interviews with him. In the 5th and 6th centuries, history was not yet a recognized field of science or study. There were no such thing as archives, scrapbooks, biographies, Facebook, websites, or any recording whatsoever. Michael Desay, a friend of mine who was a seminarian for the Diocese of Trenton, spent several years in a Benedictine monastery. I asked him what he learned about the life of St. Benedict in all of his years of study. His response was simple. He said, St. Benedict is one of the holiest and most influential men in the history of the church, and yet at the same time, one of the most mysterious in church history. The chief source of information that we have comes from Pope Gregory the Great, who in the year 593 wrote a four-volume work on the life of St. Benedict entitled The Dialogues. This was written only 50 years after the death of Benedict. In the year 581, the Lombards, a group of barbarians, sacked the famous Benedictine monastery of Monte Cassino. A few monks escaped and lived to tell about it. They actually escaped to nearby Rome, where they lived in exile for almost a century. During that time in Rome, Pope Gregory met with these monks and was moved by their first-hand accounts of the life, faith, and work of St. Benedict. Since their founder had only died a few years earlier, many of these monks had great stories to tell, personal first-hand accounts. In fact, in the dialogues, Pope Gregory the Great actually gave the name of four monks who helped pass on their eyewitness accounts to him. Constantinius, who succeeded Benedict as the next abbot of Monte Cassino, Voluntarius, Simplicus, and Honoratus. But there's still one more problem. 
Pope Gregory the Great begins the dialogues by saying his intention is simply to tell a spiritual portrait of the saint. This work is not a biography as we know biographies. It doesn't give any dates, quotes, or statistics. Instead, it's a work filled with beautiful short stories, teaching moments, and antidotes. Similar to another famous work that would come centuries later, entitled The Little Flowers of St. Francis, the dialogues are written by the Pope to provide inspiration, tell spiritual truths, and give a glimpse into the fascinating life of St. Benedict. The dialogues would truly become a landmark book for spiritual meditation and for spiritual learning. In a letter to Bishop Maximus of Syracuse, Pope Gregory stated his intention in writing this book was to ensure that the words, deeds, and miracles of St. Benedict would never be lost or forgotten in the church. So, with that in mind, with that little disclaimer, I tell you tonight a few stories about the life of the man who saved Western civilization, became a father of monasticism, and inspired holiness in the church. So, where do we go? We always go to the beginning, right? That's what Maria von Trapp said, right? Always start with the ABCs and the Doremis. Where do we look at the life of someone? We start with their birth. Benedict was born in 480 AD in a small and remote village in the mountains of central Italy named Nursia. About 70 miles from Rome, this village is known for its fresh air, hiking trails, and an abundance of wild boar. In fact, if you ever visit Italy, the sausage made from these wild boars is known throughout all of Italy. And all you have to do when you walk up to the butcher is say, what do you got from Norcia? And they'll give you the fresh cut wild boar. Sorry, am I making you hungry? All right, back to our story. Benedict was born into a noble and wealthy family. He had a twin sister, Scholastica, who would later consecrate her life to Christ, enter the convent, and become a saint of the church. Perhaps what's most interesting is his parents' choice of their son's name. Parents here will often have stories about why they chose their child's name. Well, Benedict, in Latin, it comes from the words bene and dictus, which literally translates as blessed one. Wow, how about parents choosing that for their son? Our son is the blessed one. Well, as a sign of the family's wealth and social status, Benedict was sent to Rome for education in about the year 580 AD or about when he was 20 years old. In those days, noble families often sent their sons to Rome for higher studies, as there were few opportunities for classical or advanced education in many parts of Europe at this time. In addition to opportunities for higher education and travel, this was important for the formation of any young man of noble blood. It was hoped this experience of travel, meeting other wealthy families and getting a better education would open up future doors in politics and society for such a young man. As a further sign of his family's wealth, Benedict was sent to Rome for his advanced studies with a personal servant to care for his personal needs. Just like when you and I went to college, we brought our personal servant with us. You know how it feels. But sadly, after only a brief time in Rome, Benedict became scandalized by the vice and immortality that was rampant in this huge city. Perhaps even worse, he was put off by the desolate lifestyle of his own classmates, some of his rich and famous classmates. Benedict came to study the great works of humanity. He was ready and eager to study literature, 
philosophy, history, and logic. He believed that education would lead the mind and the heart to God. Moreover, he believed that education allowed one to better understand the beauty and dignity of humanity. And a humanity, if lived with virtue, would be a humanity that gave glory to God. How sad his classmates that we would say today are playboys, right, seem to be more interested not studying the advancement of humanity, but rather what we would say is fallen humanity, wine, loose women, and crude behavior. So not wanting to make the same mistake as his classmates, Benedict came to a very profound decision. He would quit, quit school and flee to the mountains. And there Pope Gregory the Great describes his departure from Rome with one sentence, Benedict wanted only to please God. So please note, at about the age of 20 or 21, already we can see two qualities of Benedict that will influence his life and his work. First, his belief that education leads to God. And secondly, humanity is called to holiness. Sadly, Benedict left school, left Rome, and withdrew to the solitude of the mountains east of Rome. Still scandalized, but he felt called to renounce the world, to live as a hermit, and spend the rest of his life alone, deep in prayer and meditation. So let me pause for a moment and answer the question that you are hungry to ask at this moment. And that is, was Benedict being very dramatic like teenagers sometimes can be? Was Rome that bad? Was society that bad? The answer is yes. In fact, whatever you're thinking, it was worse. By the 5th century, glorious Rome was over. Almost a century earlier, Germanic tribes had overpowered the Roman army on all frontiers. And as the barbarians invaded France and Italy, they caused rampant social and political disorder. Since the barbarians were not civilized nor Christian, they allowed the empire to quickly become lawless. Crime was everywhere, and mobs literally roamed the streets, looting, raping, and killing at will. What an image to have in our minds. The barbarians soon dissolved Roman government. Now with no clear civil leadership, police no longer enforced laws, judges no longer heard civil cases, senators no longer enacted laws, and civil officials no longer even collected taxes. Soon the roads, dams, aqueducts, schools, libraries, and hospitals all went into extinction. They disappeared and closed. The poor now poured into the cities seeking protection and assistance, but ended up living on the streets and even turning to widespread prostitution for money. For centuries, Roman society was held up as the ideal of culture, learning, religion, music, science, and politics. Rome's great generals and philosophers inspired students to always speak and seek what was best in humanity. In fact, Rome was called the school of art and culture. But sadly, European society had now entered what we call the Dark Ages. Schools were closed, education was hard to obtain, and now the next generation of youth was actually illiterate. Benefactors and patrons no longer funded programs of art and science and literature, and even despite its best efforts, the church alone could not stop the incredible and rapid political and moral collapse of society. 
In fact, large segments of society were now becoming pagan and losing the faith. The young Rome seen by the eyes of Benedict was dirty, restless, and corrupt. Simply put, Benedict was not being dramatic. For many men and women seeking holiness, there was one solution in the day. Flee the cities. Go and take refuge in the mountains or the deserts. Live as a hermit. Or if you couldn't do that, live with other hermits in a small group seeking to encourage and help each other to grow in prayer and holiness. So now let's go back to Benedict, who has become Benedict the Hermit. When Benedict fled to Rome, he went to the mountain village of Endife, some 30 miles outside of Rome. After a short time there, he performed his first miracle when he miraculously mended a large earthen bowl broken by his servant. But wishing to escape the fame that this miracle brought among all the people in the village, Benedict one night fled, leaving all he had, even his servant. That must have been tough, leaving your personal servant. Still put off by the iniquity of the city and declining state of society, Benedict decided alone and by himself he become a good hermit. He would seek complete solitude and he'd make his new home in a cave, a cave all by himself nearby the village of Subiaco. Benedict would spend day and night in prayer, performed harsh penances and fasted constantly. One day a black raven appeared and brought him a small piece of bread, small enough the raven could carry in its beak. And each day the raven would return with another small piece of bread for Benedict. Benedict took it as a sign that God did not want him to starve or to become too frail and weak so he couldn't do prayer or the studies he was doing. And so every day he'd be fed by the bird and he befriended this bird. In fact, if you ever see an icon or a picture of St. Benedict, there's always a little raven either on his shoulder or at his feet, his own personal caterer bringing food every day. Benedict also gave away all the clothes he had, the rich clothes his family had given him, and began wearing just a simple long black tunic. He renounced all the things that would tie him to society because in those days, the color of the clothes you wore pointed out who you were in society. Roman senators would wear a white tunic with a purple band on it, or Roman soldiers would wear white with a red band or a red cloak. And so the clothes you wore quickly distinguished you by social order, your family, your political rank. But Benedict had none of that. He wore just a plain black simple robe, a sign he belonged to no one except God. He renounced all things and claimed only God as his family. Despite his best efforts to live in solitude, Benedict befriended a monk named Romanus, who lived in a new, nearby monastery with a small group of hermits. This monk would come every day and using a rope would lower into the cave small portions of water and food for Benedict's daily meal. The monk also would lower animal skins or hides so that Benedict would not sleep on the tough rock but actually would have a bed and a bedspread. In this cave outside of Subiaco, Benedict lives a hermit for three intense years of prayer, penance, and study. Pope Gregory the Great recounts two stories from this time that he was a hermit. First, a local priest was having a spiritual crisis and begged God to send the answers. Instead, God revealed to the priest, if you go out into the woods and bring some extra food with you, I will give you the person to help you answer your spiritual questions. He did so and bumped into Benedict. 
He bended the food, and while Benedict ate the food, he heard his dilemma and answered the spiritual question. The priest returned to the village, holier and more eager to live his faith. Another time, local shepherds accidentally stumbled upon Benedict, who was deep in prayer in his cave. They were amazed and watched for hours. Benedict didn't move. Benedict stayed there, deep, almost in a trance, deep in intimate prayer. And after watching the shepherds, likewise began to pray. And soon these shepherds return every day at the exact same time to peek in and to watch Benedict pray so intensely. And they would imitate him and try and learn from his example. But entrance into the contemplative life is not easy. Benedict bore and overcame three fundamental temptations of every human being. The temptation of pride, the temptation of sensuality, and the temptation of possessions. Later, great spiritual writers would all talk about the three temptations as being attachment to self, the flesh, and the world. But Benedict was convinced that if he learned how to overcome these temptations, he'd be able to truly understand our frail humanity and the deepest desires of the human heart. He felt that this time of intense communion with God would lead to a deeper detachment to sin and a deeper attachment to God alone. However, as you can imagine, the devil wasn't happy. Like all other hermits and mystics in the history of the church, the devil began to wage war on Benedict. And so two stories are retold in the dialogues that tell you about how serious the devil was trying to stop Benedict from being holy. First, each time Benedict tried to pray or read scriptures, small little birds would come down and attack him. Literally, every time he got on his knees or opened up the scriptures he had, birds would come out of nowhere and begin to peck him at his face or on his head. So Benedict would have to stop his prayers, close his Bible, and make the sign of the cross. And every time Benedict made the sign of the cross, the birds would fly away in haste. Benedict took that as a sign. God would conquer temptations. Another story is that frequently when he closed his eyes deep in prayer, the devil would put a clear image of a woman, a beautiful woman in his mind. I might add, the woman was not dressed for Sunday Mass. I'll just say that. <laughs> this image in his mind, this woman, would then speak in a seductive voice, calling him by name, offering him anything that he wanted. And so usually if Benedict stopped and prayed, the image would be taken away. But one time it didn't. The image stayed. And so Benedict jumped up, climbed out of the cave, and threw himself into stickly bushes in the area. And then instantly, the thought was gone. Through prayer and penance, his mind and heart were back again on God in the Scriptures. His time as a hermit gave Benedict an education in the spiritual life, his own spiritual life, and the great themes of the spiritual life. But the fruits of his contemplation were not to be kept hidden. Ah, God always has other plans. Now Benedict would become a teacher. There was a small community of monks living in a nearby area called Anio, and they had just lost their abbot. So one day the whole monastery, all the monks, came to Benedict's cave asking for a favor. The monks asked him to come and be their abbot, to teach them how to be holy as Benedict was holy. Now at first Benedict, remember, wanted to be a solitary hermit, but they kept begging, so finally he said, yes, I will be your abbot. And so they went and took him in a great procession to their monastery and said, teach us to be holy. The only problem is the monks were very lax 
And on this first day on the job, he said, all right, we're changing the program. From now on, we are going to fast, pray, do penance, and we are going to be intense in our prayer life. Well, that was good for about a week. And the new monks, the monks of the new program didn't like it. So they did what every group of monks who were not happy with their abbot did. They decided to poison Benedict. So they waited for a feast day when they had a, a nice dinner and a glass of wine, and they put the special glass of wine right at the abbot's place. And they said, Father Abbot, your blessing over the meal. So Benedict said the blessings and made the sign of the cross and gave the blessing, which was directly over his plate and his glass. A piece of the ceiling tile fell down and smashed his glass, and only his glass of wine went everywhere. And then in a moment of grace, God revealed to Benedict what had happened. And Benedict looked at his brother monks and said, God forgive you for what you have done. And then without further ado, Benedict grabbed his stuff and left the monastery and went back to his cave. It was safer in the cave. No one tried to poison him there. Despite what you think, Benedict was not discouraged. His brief time teaching the spiritual life, helping others to grow in holiness, planted in him a desire to not just be a hermit, but now to be a teacher. And remember the lesson from young Benedict when he was in Rome. Prayer and education leads to God. So, it's important to remember that this moment in church history, there was no rule book or canon law to guide religious monasteries. St. Basil, who lived in the late 300s, had written a rule of life for monks in the Eastern Rite. However, in the West or the Latin Rite, there was no guidebook and laws. So most hermits would try and find someone who seemed holy and try to learn from them. And most hermits were monks who were not ordained clergy who had ever studied theology or philosophy. For this reason in the West, most monastic leaders were self-taught. The result was many spiritual leaders, like the abbot of the monastery that was lax, simply gave it their best try and they would see what happened. But as word spread about Benedict's holiness and wisdom, large crowds came every day to his cave looking for classes. Again, not the way a hermit usually lives his life, huh? Instead, he would leave the cave, sit on a rock, and give spiritual direction and conferences to all who came hungry to learn the faith. His audiences every day could be up to the hundreds, and they included the rich and the poor, men and women, Romans and barbarians, bishops and clergy, and even parents dropping off their children looking for education because they couldn't afford to send their kids to Rome like Benedict. They thought this holy man can teach my teenagers to be holy. And so Benedict began a school of faith, a school of learning at his cave in the mountains outside of Rome. If society and culture were broken and could not educate people about God or humanity, people were so hungry they wouldn't take no for an answer, they would go into the mountains hungry for the faith. And they found a hermit willing to teach. His name was Benedict. Due to the vast numbers of students coming to Benedict, he formed them into small groups and put other monks over them as overseers. And he asked them to follow and imitate his daily life of prayer, study, and work. The demand for monks to work is very unique in Roman culture, for at the time of Rome, manual labor was done only by the lower class. Those of noble blood or leadership positions would never roll up their sleeves and do work. So when Benedict taught that his monks 
had to live by a spirit of humility and labor. It was a change in culture. In fact, he taught them his famous maxim, ora labora est, work is prayer. And due to their daily labor assignments, the monks began adding something to their normal garb, not just a black tunic to wear. Now they wore a little black overpiece called a scapular that would be black piece of cloth coming down in front and back so that you could use it to pick up logs or bricks or food that you had collected so that your habit wouldn't get dirty. And so the scapular became a standard part of the monk's habit which is still used by most monks today and by all Benedictines today. Despite not having a written rule, this little monastery system flourished and large number of people fled to come to learn from Benedict himself how to pray, how to reflect in the teachings of Christ and the teachings on the glory of God. He taught them to be saints, to grow in holiness, even by daily labor and prayer. The only rule was the example Benedict. Do what I do. Follow my example. Well, Benedict's way of monastic life was so well constructed that continued to grow so much so that in the year 529 he announced he was leaving. He would go and form a new monastery and leave the monks he'd established to continue to grow and even to form their own monasteries. Once again, God had other plans for Benedict. God wanted Benedict not just to be over one small group of monks, now he wanted Benedict to teach the entire church, the universal church. So now we come to the chapter where Benedict begins the Benedictine monastery as we in the church know it today. The town of Cassino, Italy is 81 miles southeast of Rome. In the days of the Roman Empire, it was a large city with both a military citadel and an amphitheater. And two miles east of the city, on the crown of a large cliff overlooking the city, the Romans built a huge temple to the god Apollo. And all passing by on the main road to Rome would look up and see the temple of Apollo. Beginning in the fourth century when Christianity was legalized in the empire, Casino became its own diocese and a bishop began to live there. However, the barbarians quickly invaded because this was a strategic place of importance on high ground overlooking the major, Rome, the major, the major street or way leading to Rome. After a short battle, the barbarians drove out the bishop, their clergy, and all the civil leaders. Soon, the town of Cassino, like all of Europe, was in political and moral chaos. When St. Benedict arrived in 529 with a small group of monks, there were only a few inhabitants left. Sadly, there were no clergy, and the few people left behind had given up the faith and no longer practiced the faith. St. Gregory the Great records that Benedict's first act was to go up to the top of Mont Cassino and with his own hands smash the statue of the Roman god Apollo and to destroy the altar left behind in the temple. He then announced to the small group of people left behind in the town that he himself would build a new Christian temple on this very spot, a monastery, and from there the light of the Gospels would broadcast to the world. Living among the ruins of this temple, Benedict and his monks began a 40-day fast, seeking spiritual graces, guidance, and purification. After 40 days, the monks went into the town and began to preach to the people, one by one bringing them back to the faith. And soon, not just back to the faith, soon they were eager to help him build on top of Monte Cassino 
a great monastery with two chapels, one chapel dedicated to St. Martin of Tours, made out of the temple area, and a second chapel dedicated to St. John the Baptist, built on the site where the statue of Apollo was. And erected with these two chapels was a huge, large building as the monastery. Having had a monastic career now as both an abbot and a teacher, Benedict said, I'm going to build my new monastery with two special qualities. First, there'll be one building for all the monks, one building alone. Now remember, in the past, the monks were living in small groups under other monks, and they were like commuter monks. They live on their own and come when the master taught the classes. However, learning this experience, he wanted all the monks to live together under one roof. Benedict envisions the monks as a family with one father. And of course, father's Abba, and that's where we get the word abbot from. He is the father of this monastic family. They would share a common life, a common chapel, common meals, and a common house. And there'd be time every day for solitary prayer, but also there'd be time for learning and praying and working together. Secondly, Benedict built places within the monastery for guests and visitors. In his previous experience, he realized the state of culture and society having collapsed made people so hungry, people would come to the monastery looking to learn. And remember, learning leads to God. For this reason, he would build a monastery with the ability to not turn away visitors, but to accept them so they could see and learn the richness of what was being celebrated and lived in the monastery. Since Monte Cassino was easily accessible to Rome, Capua, and other major cities, they prepared for the people would come every day hungry for the faith. This was a major step in monastic life. Most choosing to live as hermits would flee the cities to live in isolation. That was Benedict's original plan, wasn't it? But now Benedict taught his monks that a monk's vocation was not to flee from the world, but to sanctify the world, to transform the world, to illuminate the world. The holy monks were to keep the flame of faith alive by prayer, education, and work. And people living in darkness would see that light on top of Monte Cassino and come to it. They would experience it and then take that little piece of the light back to the towns and the people where they came from. Simply put, Benedict saw the monastery as a piece of heaven on earth. And the monks were to be ambassadors or guardians of faith and culture, a faith and culture that led humanity to heaven. The monastery was not to flee society, but rather to serve society and to convert society. The rule of Benedict. It was during this time that Benedict composed his famous rule book for monks. Soon it would become the official rule for all monks in the West and a classic of spiritual literature. But I don't want to go into details about it tonight because the Institute of Catholic Culture has Dr. Cutterback coming to speak on that on June 25th. So please go to that talk. Just know tonight I mentioned it so I don't get in trouble with Dr. Cutterback. Benedict wrote the rule of Benedict, right? But I couldn't leave you hanging, as we'd say. Give me just a moment. The cliff notes, as we'd say. First, Pope Gregory the Great stated that the rule of Benedict leaves one to live the manner of life that Benedict himself lived. In other words, if you want to learn about Benedict's life, try living the rule of Benedict. Second, the rule prescribes seven periods of daily prayer, which we call the divine office. 
the monks were to see the day as being in constant prayer. And even if you took a break to go to your manual labor, remember, work is prayer, you came back to the chapel and prayed again. The whole day was woven together with prayer. Third, the rule was written for laymen by one who was not a priest. St. Benedict was never ordained a priest. He was a monk and an abbot. In fact, some 500 years later, that clerical orders were required of Benedictine monks. In these days, most monks were laymen, leaving the world, committing themselves to this radical life of prayer and community. There were no physical or spiritual requirements. Anyone could do this. And so Benedict was writing for the lay people. As a footnote, images of St. Benedict always have him holding a bishop or a crozier's staff. A crozier is the staff used by a bishop or an abbot. But he never usually has a bishop's mitre on. He has the staff, but not the mitre. Only in the later Middle Ages, beginning with Charlemagne and the king of the Franks that would follow him, monastic abbots were ordained as bishops and assumed roles of authority in the church, especially in areas where there are not resident bishops. Lastly, the rule of Benedict also served to guide the establishment of women's monastic communities. Remember, Benedict's sister, Scholastica, is credited with being the founder of the Benedictine religious sisters. Such female communities followed the same rule of Benedict as the men did, but the women religious put a greater emphasis on female modesty, purity, and holiness. Benedict was a mystic. Those who knew Benedict testified his holiness was evident whenever you spoke to him or spent time with him. With outside visitors or his own monks, Benedict always listened carefully, spoke with prudence, and took people's prayer requests to the chapel. Benedict was a man who people called a bridge between heaven and earth. The monks often spoke of Benedict's prophetic powers or his ability to look into your eyes and to read your soul. One story is the nobleman who Benedict had recently brought back to the faith came to the monastery for spiritual direction. When the visitor found Benedict deep in prayer in the chapel, Benedict walked out to greet him and seemed overwhelmed with grief. Filled with concern, the nobleman asked what was the problem. And in confidence, Benedict revealed that while deep in prayer, God had revealed something to him that troubled him. God had revealed that soon the monastery of Monte Cassino would be delivered into the hands of the pagans and the monks would barely escape with their own lives. This prophecy would come true only 40 years later in 581 when just after his death, the abbey was wrecked by a new wave of invaders, the pagan Lombards. As a small footnote to history, the monastery of Monte Cassino would face two other unwelcome guests. First, it was sacked again by Napoleon's troops in 1799 when Napoleonic armies invaded Rome. Then centuries later, the Nazi troops would come during World War II. In fact, on February 15, 1944, the abbey was almost completely destroyed in a series of heavy American-led bombing raids to drive the Germans back and to allow the Allies to advance on the city of Rome. Back to Benedict. Another story is in the year 542, Totila, the king of the Goths, had defeated the army of Emperor Justinian and made a triumphal parade through the region, showing off their victory. The king of the Goths heard that a holy and powerful man lived in the area, and the king of Goths thought he should find this man and perhaps see if he could enlist him to his own army. 
to discover Benedict was really as powerful with supernatural abilities as people said, he decided to put Benedict to the test. He sent an entourage to meet Benedict, but he sent one of his servants dressed in royal robes claiming to be the king of the Goths. When the fake king entered the room to greet Benedict, Benedict looked him in the eye and said, My son, take off the clothing you have. It's not yours. You are not the king. Overcome with fear, the soldier took off the royal cloak, fell to his knees, and begged Benedict for forgiveness. The very next day, King Totila came to meet Benedict. The king fell before the abbot, seek forgiveness for this trick, and promised to amend all of his evil ways. Benedict sternly rebuked him for this trick and demanded that he stopped all of the immorality and cruelties towards civilians that he had been doing during this military campaign. Then Benedict looked at him and made a prediction. He said, Rome you shall enter, and the ocean you shall cross, but nine years your reign will end. You will die in the tenth. Totila begged for his blessing, received it, and then left. So, I know what you're thinking. It's like to have a moment of intense intensity, right? Did Benedict tell the truth? Well, he did. His prediction came true. Totila, the king of the Goths, did go on to conquer the city of Rome a few weeks later and then sailed his army to Sicily, crossed the waters. But then ten years later, as predicted during a battle, the king would lose both his crown and his life. Benedict is a famous miracle worker. Benedict was a man known by all around him for working miracles. If you needed a miracle, you would go to see Benedict. For example, Benedict was fond of visiting the local people, especially those who were sick and suffering. He would pray over them, give them a blessing, and in many cases, with his blessing or with his prayer, would come healings and miracles. One story is told by Pope Gregory the Great. One afternoon, as Benedict returned from working in the fields with the other monks, he was met by a farmer in great distress. The farmer fell to his knees and said to Benedict, Give me back my son. Benedict stopped and said, But I didn't take your son. The farmer yelled, My son is dead. Please come and bring him back to life. Upon hearing such a request, some of the monks tried to convince the father to leave Benedict. It was time for prayer. The monks had to go. But he would not leave. Instead, he demanded all the louder for Benedict to work a miracle. And then Benedict became visibly ill. With humility and sincerity, he asked, It's not such a miracle to be done with my own power. The holy apostles could do such a thing. They could raise the dead, but not me. I'm just a monk. Why are you eager, sir, to ask me to do the impossible? But the man pleaded and made a public vow he would not leave Benedict's side until he worked the miracle. So Benedict took the distressed father back to the gates of the monastery where the father left his dead son, and there the monks gathered for prayer. Seeing the man's determination, Benedict got down on his knees next to the body of the son and prayed with intensity. Then he stood and lifted his eyes to God and prayed out loud, O Lord in heaven, do not consider my sins, but the faith of this man, this father, who is seeking to see his son alive again. Amen. The moment Benedict's prayer had ended, the boy opened his eyes and came back to life. And the people rejoiced, and the reputation of Benedict spread and spread 
and spread. Benedict worked many miracles for the poor. In fact, not only did he work miracles, he often would teach them personally, catechism classes, or teach them the stories from Scripture. And wherever he went, he always brought the extra food the monastery had for the poor. One more story about Benedict and miracles. When the nearby city of Campania suffered from a famine, Benedict immediately gave away all the food the monastery had in his pantry. So much so, the only thing left was on one shelf five loaves of bread. The monks were in a panic. Remember, there's a lot of monks. It was a big, big, huge monastery. But he looked at the monks and said to them, Brothers, we have enough food. Do not worry. But noticing their dismay and distress, he added, Don't worry. Tomorrow we will have more than enough food for everyone. Benedict's faith was rewarded. The very next morning, the monk went down to open the gates of the monastery and saw sitting there at the gates a donation of flour deposited by unknown hands with no note. Indeed, there was so much flour, not only the monastery, but another group of monks could take the next day tons of bread to the city left in famine. Benedict was also known for exorcisms and blessing homes that were considered possessed. For this reason, many people have a special St. Benedict cross or medal. The inscription on the medal has, two, has the initials of two prayers in Latin. The initials stand for one, be gone, Satan, do not suggest to me thy vanities. And the second group of initials is a phrase, a prayer, evil are the things that thou possess, Satan, drink your own poison. Prayers both attributed to St. Benedict. Let me tie things together now and bring our talk to something of a conclusion. Part of the monk's daily schedule was manual labor. The monks worked hard, often in silence, for they saw their work as being a prayer and a way not of serving self, but of serving God in the church. For this reason, the monks studied hard and became literate and became students, good students. Therefore, during a time when the rest of society was falling apart without education, the monks in the monastery were learning and putting that learning into action. In fact, it's during these days of Benedictine monasteries springing up across Italy and Europe that the monks themselves made advances in agriculture, tools, construction, medicine, zoology, and very importantly, wine and liquor. And all these places were enriched because the monks were learning and putting that learning into action. Not society, it was the monasteries that were producing advancements in science and technology. Although some monks worked on the farmer vineyards, others were assigned to the scriptoriums. You ever heard of that before? The scriptoriums. The monks would sit for hours at a desk with ink and a quill pen and word for word, line for line, would translate the Bible and other important works of literature. Some of these monks were also artists, that when the, the writers would take a break, they would come and sketch beautiful illustrations or artwork so that if people could not read the book, they could look at the pictures as they went through. These were masterpieces. It was here in monasteries that Bibles and books and literature were being treasured and taught and passed on. During these dark ages, no other place in Europe was producing books or allowing people to use the books. In fact, monasteries, if you will, became the local library. 
You couldn't check the book out because they were so rare, but you could come and either read it or have the monks read it and explain it to you and show the pictures as they went. Some of the monks sang the psalms and religious hymns several times a day in what became known as the divine office. So they began compiling hymnals or collections of sacred hymns. They actually write down the words and put it in large books in their abbey chapels. If you go to monasteries, sometimes in the middle of the chapel, you'll see a huge book so that all the monks from a distance could read the words as they had to sing the psalms. And they began marking them, sometimes the dot or an accent or an underline, so that the monks would know when to go up or when to go down. And so the monks, as they prayed their prayers, really became great students of liturgical music. And so how wonderful. It was here they became schools of liturgy and art and music. In fact, the Vatican's official school of studying liturgy is run by Benton monks in Rome. It's called San Anselmo. Within the walls of these monasteries, people came to see art, hear music, experience solemn liturgies with incense and bells and great artwork. They came to learn trades and technology, to study scripture and study literature in the humanities. Within these monastery walls, Benedict and his followers kept alive faith and culture and what was best in humanity. Earlier in life, Benedict had wanted to run away from society, to wash his hands and to give up on the world that had gone crazy. But with God's grace and with this new vocation to monastic life, God gave Benedict the vision to not run away, but to evangelize society and to safeguard what was authentic faith and culture. How glad we are Benedict listened to God and became Benedict the monk and one of the great leaders of evangelization. So how can I end this evening? We're putting the landing gear now. Well, Benedict died peacefully March 21st in the year 547. He died of a fever that had lasted for six days. And on the first day of the fever, when he first took ill, he told his monks, go out and get my grave ready. God has revealed this is the end of my life. And so they did. His grave was right next to the grave of his sister, St. Scholastica. One tradition has in the sixth day of fever, as he felt his life coming to an end, he made one last request. He asked the monks to lift him up so he could stand, because the monks always stood and prayed in the chapel. And so the monks say, Benedict died his last breaths. He was praying with his brother monks, praying the liturgy of the hours. And he was buried in the Monte Cassino Abbey. And if you go there today, you can visit the tomb of Benedict and Scholastica. At the time of his death, Benedict had founded 12 monasteries in Italy. However, the order soon spread all throughout Europe, and he became known as the father of Western monasticism. His vision of a monastery being an oasis of faith, education, and virtue helped to maintain the church and Western civilization as all else collapsed. In fact, he worked to transform society, and many scholars say that he and his monks became the architects of the new civilization that manifested itself in the high Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Benedict wanted his monks to transmit a different view of humanity than what was being talked about in the world. In his wisdom, Catholic faith and culture would be the medicine for society. In 1964, Pope Paul VI named Benedict the protector of all of Europe 
and 1980, Pope John Paul II named him as one of the co-patron saints of all of Europe. His feast day is July 11th on liturgical calendar. I'm going to end now where I began. One last story. And that is on Saturday, April 1st, 2005, just 24 hours before the death of Pope John Paul II, Cardinal Ratzinger was a keynote speaker at Subiaco, the monastery where Benedict had begun his monastic life. The primatial abbot of the Benedictine order, the direct successor of St. Benedict, gave Cardinal Ratzinger an award for promoting the intellectual mission of the church. In his acceptance speech, Cardinal Ratzinger spoke of Benedict not as a saint of the past, but a saint who today still influences the church and civilization. Perhaps for us it's a glimpse, only 24 hours before the death of John Paul II, why his successor would choose the name Benedict. Let me give you the last sentences of his talk. Cardinal Ratzinger said, What we need above all at this moment in history are people who through an illuminated and lived faith can render God credible in the world today. We need people like St. Benedict, who in a time of laxity and decadence sank himself into the most profound solitude, and after all the purifications that he was forced to undergo, succeeded in making the light rise again, returning to Monte Cassino, the city on the hill, where amid ruins he put together the light from which a new world was formed. Thus Benedict, like Abraham, became the spiritual father of many peoples. Never forget the recommendations Benedict gave to his monks and placed in his rule, rules that were given not just to the monks, but to all of us, that there is a clear path that leads from ruin and crisis to the highest heights of heaven. Unquote. Amen. St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. It, it sounded like St. Benedict didn't have a lot of formal training. How did he become so learned in the, uh, the scriptures? Good question. How did Benedict become so learned? Uh, he certainly had some education because he got sent to, if you will, academic finishing school in Rome. So he had the basics. He could read and write and had access to those things. He certainly was in Rome, was able to study at least for briefly or obtain some of the writings to help. But because of that, his desire was to really embrace the faith because it was such a, a wilderness, if you will, in the city. He saw his time of prayer as his opportunity to grow closer to God. And one of his great themes was learning leads to God. So for those three years alone in the cave, Benedict literally put his day to prayer and study. And so that's pretty intense. In those days, there would have been manuscripts of the scriptures and also probably writings of some of the early church fathers. And remember, this is still the early church. We're talking the four and five hundreds, but he would have had access to those, and that's what he would have studied. And if you look at a lot of the writing of the early church fathers, a lot of it was you would read the scripture and then write a meditation on it. Or you'd have like Augustine and Ambrose take a psalm and try and connect pieces, whether they be moral, prayerful, allegorical, try and tie the things together. So for Benedict to learn to grow in the faith, it was a lot of self-study. And that was kind of the work of the day among abbots. Remember, some of the abbots were rather lax because they focused on one thing, but Benedict wanted to be as orthodox and clear.
So learning leads to God. Father, thank you for coming to St. Francis. Uh, there has been a lot of chatter on the internet, the blogosphere, about something called the Benedict Option uh, in the current culture falling apart around us using St. Benedict as kind of the model for restoring culture. Can, can you maybe speak on that a little bit and maybe apply a little bit of that history to our current situation? I, I wish I was up on all the blogs. But if you have any recommendations, please let me know. <laughs> the Benedict Option, if if you go by the name, it sounds like the first plan of Benedict was leave the world. The world's crazy, it's nuts, you know. It's like going to a restaurant that's too loud and too noisy to say, I'll find a quieter place to eat. You just leave it and let it be. But then as Benedict studied and grew in his own faith and his own encounter with Christ Jesus and his own, if you will, transformation as a disciple, realizing that our call to holiness is not just that I can become a saint, but really it's to sanctify the world. If I become a saint, I can help others become a saint. And so really Benedict started wanting to be a hermit, but ended up being an apostle. He went out to the poor people. He went out and taught. People would come to him. He would hold classes. So really we have to be very careful in the church that as we look society around us with all the struggles, and boy, we could have a whole night here talking about the struggles in society. There's a lot of deep issues going on in our world and culture today. But the church does not flee. The church has the armor of salvation and the faith and the sacraments. The church is to go into the world after we've been strengthened by Christ to bring that faith in the world and to transform it. And so to us, we look out and say, this is mission territory. We don't run from it. We go out into it. So really the Benedict option, if I could say, where am I going? I'd say it's a reminder to us as Catholics, grow in holiness, know your Catholic faith, and be courageous in sharing with others. Don't run from the world, rather let Christ strengthen us so that we can go and be apostles. Hope that answers your question. Father, we have a question coming online from Kathleen from Michigan. Uh, he says, I thought I, I heard that the monastery of Monte Cassino was destroyed. What was its status when Benedict died and when was it rebuilt? Sure, uh, my, put my notes back away. When Benedict died, remember he prophesied that the monastery would soon be turned over to the hands of, of pagans. And it was about 40, 50 years later. In fact, that's why when the monks fled, they actually went to Rome, met Pope Gregory the Great, and he was able to get the first-hand accounts. So it did happen. When you talk about destroying it, remember Monte Cassino was a strategic vantage point. You always want the high ground. You probably have some military people here, they know better than I, but you want the high ground, especially the high ground because it looked over the, ro the road leading to Rome. And if you controlled that Rome, you could have great access and great power. So all the invading armies, first the Lombards and the Barbarians, and eventually Napoleon's army, and eventually then the Nazis. Everyone wanted control of that property. When they destroyed the monastery, most often they wouldn't destroy it down to the ground because that means they would lose their barracks. They would lose their well water. They would lose their fortress. So quite often they went in and took it over without destroying it or leveling it. So they used it, and when they were done using it or they retreated, the monks would come back in, reconsecrate it, and try and bring it back up to function. Thank you, Father. Um, now, you said early in your talk that there is a great deal of mystery to St. Benedict's life, and 
to the untutored ear, it certainly sounds like the biography of a guy that lived 14 centuries ago, so I'm pretty comprehensive. I was wondering if you could elaborate on this earlier point. Sure. My friend who was a Benedictine monk, and now he's a seminarian, he'll be ordained for the Diocese of Trenton, uh, I called him and said, okay, quick, give me everything I need to know about St. Benedict. Give me one or two sentences here. Get me started. And he said that in all the studies of Benedict, he said that Benedict was a man who was uh, an incredible figure in the life and work of the church. And at the same time, he's one of the most mysterious. Because just like the little flowers of St. Francis, have you read those? They're little antidotes, little stories, little teaching moments that give you a glimpse into the life, the heart, and mind, and faith of St. Francis. It doesn't tell you what he ate for breakfast. It doesn't tell you uh, where he bought his clothes. It doesn't tell you what his favorite music or favorite color was. That's what we do today. If you're writing a biography, you get someone to go into all that, and they'd tell your genealogy, your DNA. They'd tell you all that. So the stories that Pope Gregory the Great obtained from the four monks who fled from Monte Cassino and made their way to Rome were these firsthand stories, these accounts, these memories. And so these memories, many, many of which I shared with you, in fact, almost an hour worth of memories, that's the main history we have of St. Benedict. Not just the essentials, if you will, but kind of little tastes of how he responded to crisis, to criticism, and to opportunities for sanctification. So when I talked about him being mysterious, there is no biography of Benedict like you would expect today. People today want information. We want CNN or Fox News on the moment, live, recording here. This is what's happening right now, right? You want pictures. And so that was not the way people did history in the 4th and 5th century. Rather, it was storytelling. And that's what we have of Benedict. There are these beautiful stories put together by Pope Gregory that come from the memories of monks who knew him. Okay, thank you. Thank you. hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.